You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome back to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Josh, and I'm an audio guy, and I'm the rider on the pale horse, and hell follows with me. And I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I'm the whore of Babylon, probably, according to some people. And today, we're continuing to talk about the end of the world. This is our three-part episode series on the apocalypse, and we're going to focus these next two episodes on Revelation. We sure are. So, Jenny, I gonna start this the way we always do and i know it's earlier in the morning it's earlier in the day for both of us but what are you drinking today i am drinking a nice cup of coffee um because it's it's not noon where i am and it's a little a little too early to be drinking so uh coffee it is that's fair um i am also drinking coffee today because I don't know if you can hear Jerry in the back. I just heard I just heard your dog yelling. I love uh, it. Somebody is walking by the house, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, I'm drinking coffee as well because I slept way later than I expected to today, and I just have not had a chance to get my coffee yet. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. I'm glad that you got extra sleep. Right. It's like the first time in a while that I've actually like slept and not woken up in a panic or just not been able to sleep so that's awesome insomnia for the win all right well speaking of things that will probably give you insomnia let's talk about the book of revelation yes let's do i'm excited to continue on with these conversations because this is just such a big topic that i think a lot of people just take at face value and that kind of screws up some things for other people yeah absolutely and i think i think i uh, fell down on the job on our little intro so uh, irreverent Bible talk. Join us to discover how the Bible is more fascinating and more complicated than you might expect. Yes. Yes, that, that thing. That thing. Well, we switched who was talking first, so that line should have been me and I didn't do it. So, that, you know. That was, yeah. This is why we don't like change. <laughs> right? Okay, so before we like go deep in Revelation, I just wanted to kind of give a refresher on this genre known as apocalyptic literature. So last time we talked about Daniel and we talked about the concept of apocalyptic literature more generally. Within the Bible, the two best examples of apocalyptic literature are Daniel and Revelation. And there are other apocalyptic writings that are not in the Bible. There are also apocalyptic sections of other parts of the Bible. Anyway, we'll get into it. But apocalyptic literature as a genre is rooted in a particular understanding of the world, and specifically that there is a grand cosmic conflict underway between God and the forces that oppose God. So however, you know, whatever terminology you use around that, if it's God and the devil or it's God and, you know, some other God there is a conflict. There's a huge cosmic war going on. And our world, the sort of realm of human experience, is only one theater in this whole war. So the things that are happening to people, which could be war, political conflict, religious persecution, those things are 
uh, signs and symptoms of a bigger problem, which is this, this war between God and the forces that oppose God. So because this conflict is happening on a global scale, it's terrifying, it's dangerous, especially for God's people who are usually being oppressed or hurt in some way in this conflict. But part of the apocalyptic worldview is this conviction, this absolute certainty that God will triumph in the end. So the outcome of this war is certain, and as bad as it gets, the message is like, just persevere, keep the faith, hang on, God is going to win in the end. So it it ultimately has sort of an an optimistic or a hopeful attitude that basically no matter how bad things get, no matter how many of God's faithful people are fed to lions, God is going to triumph in the end. And we're going to see that come through real, real strongly uh, in Revelation. So that is our kind of primer. And we're going to dive into the book of Revelation. Josh, what what do you think of or what sticks out to you when you look at Revelation? Oh, I mean, it's just such a, I don't want to say it's a mess, but it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Especially coming in from current day and age. Like, I think of the book series and films, whatever, the Left Behind series. and Oh, man, we got to talk about Left Behind for sure. I can't help but just roll my eyes when I hear or see anything about that but that's a whole different story for the yeah spoiler alert to our audience the left behind series does a bad job of understanding revelation but it does have the guy from walker texas ranger in it chuck norris no um his partner in it oh oh what was his name that's been a while my grand grandpa loved that show so we would always watch it when we were visiting it was good times literally the only thing i know about walker texas ranger is chuck norris so i'm i'm amazed that there were other actors in that show it's weird right you just think it could be chuck norris just ninja kicking throughout the show but they actually had a storyline i think it's been a while (laughs) but anyway yeah so i think of that you think of you know, a lot of shows represent like, here's the good people being lifted up into heaven while the bad people are stuck on earth. And that's kind of what you, you see in a lot of uh, popular portrayals of the revelation, the end of the world, the apocalypse. Yeah. My favorite kind of pop culture take on it is the television show Supernatural, which is so, so trashy. I love it so much. Also a very bad reading of Revelation, but whatever. Um, it has very cute boys in it, so. They're pretty handsome. They're pretty, they're pretty good looking. Uh, also, side note, Jared is in a new series, Walker, Texas Ranger. They're doing a new one. Really? So look how that relates. Whoa. It all ties in. This is, right? this is probably, you know, a, a grand conspiracy of some kind. Has to be. <laughs> I have a pretty good story uh, about reading Revelation and reading Revelation uh, kind of badly from my own earlier years. So when I was in the eighth grade, uh, so I was, what, probably 13 thereabouts, there was a really bad wildfire that came through my hometown and everyone had to evacuate, like 10% of the town, ha- like the homes were destroyed. It was a big deal. It was it was very bad. Um, also, for those who don't know, my hometown is Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is, you know, 
kind of the central location of the movie Oppenheimer and the whole story of the atomic bomb. And there is still a national laboratory there, and they still do a lot of work having to do with nuclear weapons and stuff. Yeah, when there's a big fire that's like burning through the town and there are people who are like, what's going to happen if the plutonium facility burns down? Like that was a real concern at the time. It didn't burn down, FYI. Spoiler. Spoiler alert for a thing that happened 20 plus years ago. I have really vivid memories of this this point in time because it was pretty traumatic and it kind of happened in stages as these natural disasters often do. So part of the town had been evacuated, but the neighborhood where I lived hadn't been evacuated yet. We would get evacuated eventually. But I have this really vivid memory of like standing on my street and looking across one of the little canyons to another part of town and you could see the fire coming down the hill like each tree going up like a roman candle as the fire just like climbed down the hill towards us and there was all this smoke and the big plume of smoke like kind of blotted out the sun and i don't know if anybody's ever seen this themselves or like seen photos of it but when there is a smoke cloud in front of the sun the sun looks really really red like scary bright red And so I was like taking all of this in and I was also like a weird church nerd kind of kid. And so I went back to my room and I like opened up my Bible and I looked at Revelation and Revelation says like the sun turns to blood. And I was like, oh shit, it's all happening. And I think like even at the age of 13, I didn't really think that this fire that was happening was the end of the world. But I did very much identify with this imagery in Revelation and feeling like it was happening in my real life in a a very scary kind of way. And I, I bring up this story because I think that is how a lot of people interact with the book of Revelation if they read it. I mean, maybe they just look at it and they're like, this is weird and scary and I don't like it. But I think there are also people who look at it and say, yeah, I see these events happening around me, and therefore I, f- I feel like I am a character in this story, and then you engage with it kind of on a different level. And so I think it's important to talk about that because I think it's a very typical way that people do interact with apocalyptic literature, that we see our, our current story in the pages of this ancient book. Now, yeah, I think that's... You know, it's really common for a lot of media today anyway, too. Like, I don't necessarily know your opinions on this, but I know, like, in college, we would watch a show and it would be like, okay, that character's Ryan, that <laughs> character is Noah, and this character's me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it would just be like, yep, we can relate to that. And trying to, like, and I don't know if that's just a human thing to, like, insert yourself into it so you could, like, feel like, oh, yeah, that's how I'd be. <laughs> yeah, which... Which one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are you? Which one of the Sex and the City characters are you? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it was it was Friends, which I'm not, has not. Which one of the Friends are you? That show has not aged well. It has not, and I'm, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. That's just too bad. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I think we do, probably just as humans, we want to see ourselves in stories. And I think stories 
come out of the human experience. And so there's kind of like this this feedback loop that happens. I think where it becomes tricky and like potentially a little dangerous is when you're looking at this apocalyptic literature and you're saying like, oh, I can map not only my own personal story into this, but also like geopolitical events onto this. And I think people have done this in every generation since the book of Revelation was written. You know, I think you can look at Revelation and you can say, oh my gosh, it talks about plagues and we just had a a COVID-19 pandemic. Oh my gosh, it talks about wars and Russia has invaded Ukraine. And I think it's normal to make those connections, but when you take the additional step of saying, therefore I can use this 2,000-year-old book to like predict future events and and like outline the course of history as it goes forward that's when you start to get into like some doomsday cult shit which is dangerous how many people before it was like you know was it the mayan calendar that ended and it's like it's the end of the world like how many people like legit mm-hmm burned bridges before that happened it's just like oh well i still gotta go to work the next day but it's you know you get a panic yeah and you might not take it as serious but you know there's somebody that hears that and with a mix of the right words and anxiety and all of that just looking for a purpose or looking for that meaning of life or something like they just latch onto that and it could have devastating consequences for them and their family, financially, emotionally, everything. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was going to say, I think I think it was the Heaven's Gate group that believed that when the comet passed by, this was like in the 90s when the comet passed by, that they were going to be like taken up into space. And they committed mass suicide or or. I don't like that verb committed, but they they took their lives um, because they believed in this kind of apocalyptic narrative. And that's really tragic. You know, we do have to think carefully about how we engage with this kind of literature because it can lead to some really scary stuff. But back to Revelation. Revelation is not written about the events of the 21st century. It is actually, you may be surprised to hear, written about the events of its own time in the first century, the you know first couple generations after the time of Jesus. And Josh, tell us about that history. Tell us about what was going on in the, uh, the ancient Near East around this time. Oh my gosh. So I think we've discussed before multiple times that you know the sign of the beast 666 translates basically to nero and explain explain how that like what does that mean how does 666 go to nero oh gosh i have that written somewhere and i don't remember where i put it so in this is a thing that goes back to hebrew where letters are connected to numbers and numerology is really important so in the same way that you can take our alphabet and say, okay, well, the letter A is one, B is two, C is three, D is four, go through the whole alphabet. And then you could add up like all the letters of your name. What would that total be if you added up all the the values of the letters? And so the mark of the beast, 666, represents that kind of numerology where it is a name that has been converted into a number 
based on this kind of code. Working backwards from 666, historians have been able to establish, I think, like, this is pretty widely accepted, that 666 is actually referring to a specific historical figure, the Emperor Nero. Because I think it was like the Greek name Nero Caesar, and you add that all up, and that is what leads it up to the 666, the number of the beast. So what's uh what's up with Nero? Why is why is he important? So I have done a lot of research on Nero because I think this is really tragic and interesting. So I'm just gonna go through. I have a whole page and more of notes about Nero. If you're good with that, and I can bore our listeners with it, I love it because normally I'm the one who's doing like here's a 15 minute info dump. So take it away, Josh. Nero was the last Caesar in the line of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, um, and that started with Caesar Augustus. So Nero was the last one in that, that line. So Nero was made emperor at 16. Um, many believe that he didn't actually want to be an emperor. He was more of an arts lover. And his whole story is just crazy how he got to that point. So he was related to Caligula. And when... Nero's father died, Caligula just basically took all the inheritance for it. It's like, nah, we're taking this. So her mo his mother eventually remarried to Emperor Claudius, and in that line of emperors, uh, a woman couldn't lead. So he had a daughter, and he had a son from the first marriage he had. So his mother, Agrippina, basically ended up getting Claudius to adopt Nero. And so he could be in line to become the emperor. And that's where things get really crazy because a lot of people said didn't Nero didn't necessarily want to become in charge of stuff. But his mom wanted to basically rule through him. Some of the first coins that were issued under Nero's reign, they either had pictures of just his mother or it was a picture of his mom on one side and him on the other. Which obviously is like, wait a minute. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's just supposed to be the emperor. So after some disagreements, there's all this story about Nero having an affair and his mom was upset about it. And then other things, she basically said, fine, I'm going to go to Britannicus, Nero's stepbrother, who should be the rightful heir. He was actual blood son of Claudius. There was a banquet that was held and the story goes, because I, you know, obviously we're not, there's no specific proof of this, but the story is at that event. Britannicus was poisoned at a dinner party that was attended by a bunch of nobles. One account of the event is that Britannicus was given a hot drink, which was tested by a food tester, but it was super hot. And he's like, hey, can this be cooled down? And so when they added water in, people believe that they added poison in at that point. And then basically after he drank that, he went into like this seizure-like thing and died. Um, some said that couldn't speak, couldn't breathe. And Nero's like, hey, he has, he's had a seizure. He's had them since he was a kid. Some people believe that Britannicus was poisoned, and others believed that he just, he literally died of a seizure. And it just was one of those things. Mm-hmm. It's, it is perhaps the perfect crime. It gets better. If these stories are true, because Nero did a lot of terrible things. He did a lot of great things for Rome at the time. He lowered taxes. He put money into arts. He took care of his citizens a lot in the beginning. So he was actually pretty revered at the time. And some people still revered him after death. But going back to 
his mother. So after the whole like, hey, I'm going to side with your stepbrother, she had like started poking around like ways to get Nero off the throne so she could continue her influence. Because at that point, Nero's like, I'm not, I'm done with this. I'm not listening to you. So it's believed that Nero had commissioned a boat. And basically this boat was guaranteed to sink. What happened in the story is that his mother was actually using that boat and was sailing across and the ship sank. She survived the sinking, swam to shore, and when she got to shore, she was executed. And then it was reported back that she died of suicide. So that's actually a pretty, I think, well-known, like, believed thing that Nero did have something to do with his mother dying. Was it a shipwreck? Was that whole thing true? Jury's still out. I mean, there's just so much going on with that. And it gets better. Because <laughs> it just shows, like, the decline that Nero had started going through. I haven't even gotten to the fire stuff yet. Nero's first wife was Claudio Octavia. She was actually the daughter of Emperor Claudius, which it should have disqualified him, her from marrying Nero. But his mother kind of, like, worked behind the scenes to still get him married. Even though they were step-siblings, it would have still been viewed as an incestuous relationship, and that wasn't going to be allowed. So Nero was married. She was supposed, like, Lady Octavia was great. Claudio, everyone loved her. She was very honorable and virtuous and pure, it was believed. But she couldn't get pregnant. So Nero, being a dude in ancient times, started having an affair. Which, you know, because that's a thing. Because he needed... He needed an heir at this point. You gotta have them babies. Mm-hmm. So he's sleeping around, and Papea, this other lady, ended up getting pregnant with his kid. And so Nero's like, well, I don't need you anymore, Claudia. We're gonna get a divorce, and got divorced, claimed it was she was promiscuous or adultery, that kind of thing. Although, supposedly, 12 days after the divorce, Nero got married to Papea. Which, how would you get married so fast if you were just in a committed relationship? This, this should be an HBO miniseries if they haven't already done it yet. Holy cow, this is insane. Like, the people, like his, you know, loved supporters that, you know, actually did care quite a bit for their emperor. They were pissed because they loved Lady Octavia. Like, she was just this pure example of what the emperor's wife should be and so they exiled octavia nero did and was just like no if we get her out of here we won't have to deal with this anymore no the people were still just like outraged about this so in this case he was like what do i do you know the people are mad my people are like turning their backs on me i could i could remarry her no no that's not a good thing i can't do that so the only smart thing that he could think of was, well, we'll just kill her. <laughs> so I read there's some reports that she was locked in a steam room and suffocated, beheaded, and supposedly the head was brought back to Papea, his new wife, because she was super jealous and super angry about why everyone still loved her. Mm. And it gets better. <laughs> so Papea had given birth uh, their first child was a daughter. And so, great, she's able to get pregnant. They can continue on until they have a son. Well, they were having a disagreement. I can't remember 
if anybody actually noted what it was, but they got into an argument and Nero just snapped and like beat her to death. And a lot of reports were that a lot of the attacks were aimed at the stomach, which is really kind of crazy for people because Nero needed an heir. He had to have an heir. He loved Papea. So this story is a little, is it true? Is it not? But this is the stories that have been passed down that actually probably were passed down while Revelation was being written because Nero went into crazy mourning after she died. And also like she maybe, maybe not was sleeping with Nero when Nero was married, right? So like this is a lady who doesn't mind cheating. Right, exactly. So no one knows for sure if she was what the argument was about. If she, which probably is the case, she probably died during childbirth and the baby probably died too. But after that, like Nero got crazy. He found that servant boy that looked just like Papea, had the boy castrated and basically took him as his new bride because spitting image of Papea. That's just the love life side of him. Now we got to get into some of the other things about him. The great fire. So the, everybody has this image of Nero fiddling as... As Rome burns. Yes. However, the fiddle wasn't invented till like a few <laughs> years after that fact. And Nero was actually like 30, 35 miles away from the city when this fire started. So there was no way he could have been there. But Josh, we can't, we can't let facts get in the way of a good story here. Right. That's why I'm telling everybody all these th- other things, because it's a really interesting story. But Nero hears about this fire that's, like, ravaging Rome. And he is like, no, we have to go back. So he is on his horses as soon as he's told, going back, trying to lead efforts to get people to extinguish the fire. He's trying to do the right thing, having buildings demolish in the line so it kind of stops the fire. Mm -hmm. And he is letting the people that are now homeless because their houses burn, he's letting them into the palace to... stay while they're trying to figure things out he's giving them food he's giving them shelter and the people are loving it like the people are like this is what a leader should be sure and so he has this grand plan like hey we're gonna rebuild the city we're gonna do all these things and this is where i think a lot of the theory comes in that nero wasn't as honest as he let out because a lot of that huge section that burned where the houses were he's like well we'll build a we'll build a palace there a big giant palace and we're going to use the funds for that but we got all this land now that's not being used so people are like wait a minute so this land that was ours that we lived in is now conveniently cleared and you're going to start using this to build a palace on so this is where people start getting that suspicion of like wait a minute he's did he do this did he instruct this Which is, you know, it could be, it could have just been a random fire that started in a shop, but he's definitely taking advantage of spending a ton of money on it. And I have to look up really quick because he does build a statue of himself. Mm -hmm. um, And I want to get the details right on it. Because I think a lot of people saw that and were like, this is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, The Colossus of Nero. So the Colossus of Nero was built in that area as well. It was a 98 foot tall bronze statue. Classy. Classy. 98 feet. In this spot where these people used to live that now his palace, um, the Domus Aria. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not great with Greek. Another reason I didn't go to seminary. To be fair, this is, this is Latin, but it's all good. Is it? Well, I mean, it wasn't. I got nothing. But anyway, so people started suspecting that. He did this on purpose. And... Once people started like saying, hey, 
this fire was really convenient for you. What do you do when you are getting blamed for something that you may or may not have part of? You try to shift the blame. So this is where things get really out of hand. So at that point, Nero didn't like the Christians. He just didn't like that this group of people, this religion, was getting popular. They wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And so he's like, hey, this fire started because of them. You know, they're, they're a cult. They eat flesh. They're, they're cannibals because of yep. communion, as we know it today. This, by the way, was like a classic. This was a very common thing in the early Christian movement that people were like, excuse me, you eat flesh and drink blood? That's messed up. Right. And it was bread and wine and theology of communion, whatever. But yeah, the the Romans were like, what is happening over there? As you would, because it is kind of crazy. But Nero goes on a tangent to wipe out Christianity. He is taking people, throwing them in the Colosseum type thing, because the Colosseum wasn't built yet, I don't believe. But in these arenas, having people attacked by animals, lions, he was having wild animals attack the Christians. He was killing them crucifixion style be like fine you want to worship this thing that has to do with the crucifixion you're going to get crucified also he would use basically put this is really hard he would put christians on these poles covered in tar and he would use them as torches to light the areas and a lot of people were seeing this might not have liked christianity but a lot of his citizens were like whoa this is this is too much this is way too far so then it started shifting even more, and Nero started getting a little more paranoid about being overthrown, being assassinated, and that kind of led to a lot where he ended up, it's not sure if he unalived himself or he had a servant do it for him, but he, he left the city for a while in fear of all that. Whew. And that's just a quick summary of Nero. There's so much more that I didn't cover because it is... You gotta, you gotta love the ancient Romans. There's so much drama. Now, it's believed during that time that Nero also had St. Peter killed. And St. Peter believing that, hey, no, I'm not worthy to be executed the same way as Christ was. Yeah. Requested that he be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as Christ. Yeah. Here, here ends the history lesson for right now. <laughs> Yeah, here here ends all the drama of uh, Nero. Yeah, and like, I don't know, Nero's story is pretty wild, but he's not even like the only one that has this kind of crazy story in mm -mm. ancient Rome. I mean, like, we didn't even talk about Caligula. Like, no. there's some there's some wild shit. Yeah, and the reason I focused on Nero is because Nero was like, it's the big start of like we're going to kill the Christians. We're going to just wipe this off the map to start with, which I think backfired horribly because people actually started feeling like horrible for these people. Like, wow, they're, this is really brutal. And the fact that like St. Peter got crucified upside down because he probably could have got out of it if he would have been like, hey, no, this isn't true. I don't, you know, this was all, this was all a big lie. I recant because he was supposedly there and he wouldn't. He was like, no, I was there. This is true. This happened. Christ was real. Christ is son of God. And people were like, what, what did this, what's this guy know? Yeah. You're willing, you're willing to die for that belief. Like you're probably not making it up. Exactly. And that really sparked Christianity to grow a lot in those times. 
I think the other thing that we should talk about in this period of uh, Nero and the persecution of Christians is we should probably talk about the siege of Jerusalem, because this came at like the end of Nero's life and actually continuing after him. But it's like pretty important for understanding this uh, this period. So, yeah, Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in Judea, they kind of had a pseudo independence the jewish citizens did but they were kind of living alongside with the gentiles and then basically the governor representing the roman empire was just kind of siding more with the gentiles he was upset that you know a lot of the theology involved like hey the jewish people believe there's one god they believe you know we can't eat this we're not gonna worship the emperor we're not gonna do these certain things that you know, was pretty common practice in the Roman Empire times. And so as another way of punishment, they started raising taxes a lot. And from what I was reading and watching YouTube videos to, you know, further my knowledge, Judea was making a good amount of money in that area at the time. And that was really becoming like a good means of support for the Roman Empire. So when the Jewish people finally kind of reached their breaking point they kind of forced the romans out of the city and they weren't going to pay their taxes they were going to keep like hey we're going back to our own king we're not going to deal with this obviously the roman empire was like no that's not going to happen and so nero did uh send oh i can't pronounce his name ever vespian vespasian i think vespasian i like vespasian to like hey go take back go take jerusalem yeah yeah the only thing i would add is just like part of what prompted the rebellion to really kick off was that the Roman governor wanted to seize money from the temple treasury. And so, you know, like nowadays, at least in the United States, we have separation of church and state. But in Jerusalem, like the temple and the treasury and the political power and the religious power are all connected. But for these Romans to be like, hey, give us the money that's in the temple would have been just outrageous. Like, no, that's the temple. Like, that's the money that has been given for the sacrifices. That's the money that's been given for the temple economy. And that, like, no, you can't have that money. But this governor was like, nope, I'm taking it. And then, yeah, then they rebelled in, I think, the year 66. Yep. I always kind of remind my people, like, okay, if... Jesus died in or around the year 33, right? We're talking like another three decades after that. So Christianity is still very new. But there's uh, this Jewish rebellion, various uh, factions kind of rise up. And like you said, Nero sends uh, one of his generals to like deal with this. Meanwhile, we had the story we'd already heard about Nero kind of like losing it and eventually dying in the year 68, if I'm remembering correctly. Nero stopped aliving in 68. So yeah, Nero's gone at that point, but they're still going over. And then we didn't really get into it, and that's we don't need to get into it too much. But after Nero died, there was a huge, like, who's taking over as the emperor? Yep. Like Big power vacuum. Because Nero was the end of that line that started with Augustus, so... Yeah. who has the right to it. And that just started this whole thing. So we have we have what's known as the year of the four emperors. It's not a good sign if you're 
your emperorship doesn't even last a year. It's right. not good. And so the general actually ended up becoming the emperor. Vespas Vesp blah, blah, blah. We'll just call him Ves. Yeah. So like from the from the point of view of Jerusalem, there's this like war going on over several years. Meanwhile, in Rome, they're having like a huge political catastrophe. Nero's dead, four emperors in quick succession. Finally, this general Ves does become emperor, but the rebellion in in Judea is still ongoing, and so Vespasian is like, "Okay, I'm going to appoint my son Titus to be in charge of this while I go be emperor." And as a result, Titus laid siege to the city of Jerusalem in the year 70. It was a seven-month siege. It was horrible, like really, really, really horrible. A lot of people died. And in the end, the Romans did break through the, the wall, break through the defenses of the city, and uh, they destroyed the temple, which is, you know, cataclysmic, especially for the Jewish people. There had been a temple, the Temple of Solomon, which was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the people were sent into exile, and that was like the catastrophic event that motivates a lot of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and then they were able to come back from Babylon, rebuild their temple, and then that second temple was destroyed by the Romans and has never been rebuilt. So nowadays, if you hear of people going to Jerusalem and going to the Western Wall, that's all that's left. That's the western wall of the temple complex, because uh, the rest of it was utterly destroyed. All of this is going on in the context of also the persecution, the increasing persecution of Christians. And, and part of the reason I think it's important to talk about this is, first of all, just because the destruction of the temple was a really big deal, but also like after these rebellions were put down, the Romans crucified people by the hundreds and thousands. I mean, just utterly brutal because they wanted to kind of like make an example and say like, this is what happens when you try to stand up to Rome. So nobody better try to stand up to Rome, which is sort of the, the background that the Christians are also dealing with uh, during this same period. So yeah, it's just kind of a lot of, hey, if you won't, add the roman beliefs into this you're gonna meet the same fate so a lot of i think areas that were conquered like they still were able to worship their deities but they had to kind of bring in the roman gods as well and like at least acknowledge them and pay some respects and i think the big key was to see the emperor as a god as well just that higher status than than they were and if if you are you know, say you're Egyptian, you have your own pantheon of gods, it's pretty easy to be like, yeah, sure, also the Roman gods, also the emperor, like, it's all good. But if you're Jewish or you're Christian and you're like, no, there is one God, or, you know, there is one one Messiah who is the son of God, um, that's going to be a problem. I mean, I, I do think, like, just as sort of a, uh, I don't know, a w little Wikipedia footnote, like, some of the stories about what was going on, uh, some of the stories about what was going on in the early, like, Christian era and the persecution of Christians, like, may be exaggerated, um, because what we have are we have accounts written by Christians, so, like, obviously they have their own uh, angle, and they're like, everything was so bad, let me tell you about how bad it was, and it was like, well... 
There is some question about the extent of the persecution, but for sure Christians were being persecuted, and so were Jewish people, because they also only worshipped one god and would not worship the emperor. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, persecution of Christians was absolutely happening. It varied depending on, like, which emperor was in charge. So Nero was for sure one of the worst. The other person who gets cited as doing a lot of persecution of Christians was Emperor Domitian, who comes just a little bit later than Nero. So there were these periods where the persecution got a lot worse, and where we do have things like Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum, Christians being crucified, etc. And yeah, this is, you know, if you remember what we talked about in Daniel, that the the people in the time of when Daniel was being written under the Greeks, under Antiochus, they were also being forced to choose between their faith and staying alive, and people were martyred for their faith. We see the same thing happening in the context of Revelation, and so these kind of intense periods of persecution are exactly what apocalyptic literature is for. Is like, yeah, you are literally being crucified because of your belief, and you need to keep the faith, right? Don't give up. Don't don't back down. Don't recant, uh, like you were saying, Josh. Like, keep the faith because even if you die. God is going to win in the end. And as we get into um, Revelation, you'll you'll see like really clear references to this where it talks about the blood of the martyrs, like people who have actually been killed because of their Christian faith. Uh, so it, yeah, it gets pretty intense. And that's why I wanted to kind of talk about why I preface all the Nero's things with according to the story, because I believe, and I'm sure you agree too, Christianity has a lot of has a lot of say in history now mm-hmm. like a lot of that christians have been kind of in charge of a lot of countries for a while and been like well history actually means this so we don't know all the facts like we don't know if he actually killed his mom we don't know if yeah. he actually killed his second wife we don't know if he killed britannicus it's pretty clear that he did kill octavia yeah absolutely and when you look at these historical sources, you also look at the Romans, right? And so, like, Roman historians would maybe be pro-Nero or anti-Nero, and so, like, their version of events would also be colored by their kind of biases. So, yeah, there's always a lot of question marks when we're talking about this kind of history. But like you said, you know, the the famous saying goes, like, history is written by the winners, and, uh, you know, culturally in... In Europe and and the West, Christianity ends up being the dominant religion for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, yeah, uh, Christians do get to write a lot of the narrative. It is, I think, very responsible to look at those accounts with a bit of a grain of salt. Like, not necessarily that it's all bullshit. I don't think that's true. But I also don't think we can take it as purely objective uh, fact. Right. Because it's not objective. Well, and I think we're seeing that in a lot of this day and age, too, where, no, we don't we don't need to talk about that section of history. Or, no, no, we, we, we can't say it like that. It needs to be in a positive light. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, no, that's not a positive thing. Okay. I, I, I can't control it. Yeah. I I think there's so much, and this is like, now we're getting on a tangent about teaching history, but I think there's so 
much of a tendency for like all or nothing, right? That like something is all good or all bad. And so if we offer like even the tiniest little critique of like, you know, Christendom, like Christian hegemony, therefore we must be saying that all of Christianity is bad and lies and evil, which obviously is not what I think and probably not what Josh thinks. Um, no. But on the other hand, it's it's just not accurate and it's not fair to say, like, Christianity has done nothing wrong because clearly it has. And so we need to be able to move in this nuance uh, and accept that there's there's truth on both sides. Do we need to bring up the Crusades? I mean, yeah, we could. We could definitely talk about that. It's pretty bad. Let's talk about the intense and sustained persecution of Jewish people in Europe by Christians for generations. But anyway. But anyway. So now that we got now that we got like this kind of background of what was going on at the time, I think in the next episode we're probably going to delve right into how those translates into what events that people yeah, are seeing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so what we'll do is we'll we'll call it here for this episode. You got a little background on apocalyptic literature and you got some great background on first century Roman political drama coming soon to an HBO miniseries near you. I'd watch that show. After the writer's strike, obviously we support the writer's strike mm -hmm. on this podcast. But we'll be back in the next episode. We are going to talk all about Book of Revelation. It's going to get weird, y'all. Thanks for listening to Irreverent Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.